you don't have to live for very long before you realize that the world that we live in is filled with hostility. And I don't just mean wars and fighting. If you go outside this time of year, we're already fighting the sun, burns, and cancer. We've just fought the winter, avoiding cold, burns, um, death. We're at war with the elements. In your garden or your yard, you're fighting weeds or pests or fungus or mosquitoes, for my Ugandan pronunciation, for my children. If you have chickens, you're fighting predators, disease. We are at war with destructive and harmful invaders. In your house, maybe you're fighting flooring or peeling paint or appliances or leaks or mold or a thousand other tasks of wear and tear. Same with vehicles and needs of repair. We are at war with decay. In our relationships, we are fighting being understood or misunderstood. Hurtful words, responses, selfishness, busyness, time, expectations, unmet expectations. We're at war with people, kids. You battle obeying or not obeying, listening or not listening, loving others or loving yourselves, submitting your hearts to a no or throwing a tantrum or a fuss, giving to a brother or sister or taking for yourself and on and on. You're at war with yourself and we are at war with ourselves. We live in a constant war of hostility. Every minute of every day, There is a battle going on, either outside of us or within us, and that's the reality of living on this side of the fall. And that's a very different picture than we had in Genesis 2 a few weeks ago. Do you remember the picture that we saw there? A world perfectly created and ordered by God, God creating man from the dust of the earth and intimately breathing the breath of life into his nostrils, providing a beautiful, bountiful place, the life-giving tree and life-giving food and resting man there, peace and beauty, not hostility. And God designed man with a purpose. At the heart of masculinity, the purpose to be in relationship with God, his creator, his king, and his father, and to image God as a royal son through his own calling to work, right, to cultivate and nurture, and to keep or to protect and defend, to steward in a priestly way God's command and God's place, his word and the place where he would dwell with his son and daughter, with his people. It was a beautiful picture. Of course, God designed woman with a purpose at the heart of femininity, this relationship with God, her creator, her father, her king, and to image God as a royal daughter through her own calling as an ezer, as a helper and a life giver, which is what the name Eve means. She is a life-giving helper. And we saw the poetic beauty of Adam beholding Eve and the establishment of marriage, and the intimacy of oneness, two becoming one, also imaging a greater heavenly reality, a greater marriage, Christ and his people. But now, the foreshadowing from chapter two that we looked at has now come to pass. The enemy has come. Man has not protected He has gone passive. Eve did not test according to God's revealed word. She did not even speak to her husband, head over creation. But she made her choice based on her own judgment. And Adam didn't stand on the truth of God's word. He didn't oppose the enemy or resist his lies. So Eve is deceived. Adam willfully rebels. And God's good creation is turned upside down. And now the poetic beauty of Genesis 2 gives way to the poetic dismay of Genesis 3. Provision, peace, oneness, intimacy, enmity, strife, and hostility of living in a fallen world. 
And today we're going to see the ramifications of this fall as they relate specifically to men and to women. Last week we looked at the serpent and, and this division of offspring and the hope that, yet, that God yet gives. And today we want to see God's provision through this offspring who did come and the hope that that brings to us now and in the future because we're going to see together that our God is a God of great reversals. Our God is a God of great reversals, a pattern that will go throughout the storyline of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word together, we your word be clear. We pray that um, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray for your help, that you would be our teacher, and that we would behold the glorious gospel. And Lord, that you would work in our hearts and our lives, because we are a people. We've confessed it. We need you. And you are the God who meets our needs. You come to us. And how beautiful and awesome is that truth. Thank you that you are the one who changes us. And we need you, Lord. So we cry out to you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Genesis 3. I'm going to just read the, the whole passage, and then we'll move into our text. I'll start from verse 14, just so we hear it all together. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Last week, we ended with what is often called the first gospel, the hope of the offspring who will come from the woman. So the woman who was deceived will be the woman who will bring life to the deliverer through one of her offspring. And this deliverer is appointed to bruise or to crush, right? It's a death-blowing bruise to the serpent's head. Is that just? Shouldn't the woman be killed for her rebellion? But here, right at the beginning of this, there is a divine reversal. Because instead of the serpent bringing utter ruin on God's good creation, in a twist by the God of great reversals, the enemy's malice will turn back on his own head, resulting in his own defeat and destruction. God is the God of great reversals. And this is the pattern. We'll see it over and over. And now in our passage, God is going to address Eve specifically because the reality of sin will indeed impact her. And so just as she has been promised that the offspring who will crush the serpent's head will come from her, that sounds amazing. And yet sin has affected. And God says in verse 16... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Okay, two key implications here. First, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Notice that God does not say, now you will have pain in childbearing. Okay, pain is not a result of the fall. That's a bit shocking. I always just assumed that it was. It's not as if in the garden gravity would have had no impact on Adam. Or if he cut himself, it wouldn't have hurt. No, it's the gift of pain that actually makes us pay attention to injury, 
to rest, a twisted ankle. The fact that Adam needed to eat means that he could experience strenuous exercise and hunger, which is a form of pain, hunger pains. God designed the complex pain network as a means of protection and care for the body living in the physical world God created. That's a big topic in itself. Point is that pain in itself is not bad, nor is it an enemy to be avoided at all costs. It has a purpose to protect and to heal. And it's very valuable even in the process of giving birth. And if you want to hear about that, don't ask me. Ask my wife, who not only has experienced it six times, but she is a trained doula and has helped many women through the process of giving birth and can talk about the gift of pain for childbearing. But that God-designed, God-given pain network has been affected by the fall. And we see that, pain raging out of control because of disease, often uh, leading to death is one example. Here, God simply states that the pain of childbearing will be increased or multiplied. The idea is that it will be a hard labor. That's the same uh, term that we're going to see God use with Adam as he will work the ground. It will be hard work. A hard labor. And so even though God has promised a deliverer will come through the process of giving birth, it will be difficult. It will be painful. The deliverer will begin life in a fallen world through a hard and painful labor. It's important to note here that, that this does not include all of the ways that the fall has affected giving birth. The text doesn't speak about birth defects, miscarriage, barrenness. These are all realities of living life in the world and its impact on the womb. The text is keying in on key aspects of what has been talked about in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Eve's ability to have children is a key part of her own calling to be fruitful and multiply. It's key for the overcoming of the enemy, which has just been stated, but it will be a hard labor. And so while the text is specific, there is yet much more that you see playing out. The same thing can be seen in the next part. The second implication is is God says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So your desire shall be for your husband. Boy, this is hotly debated. Um, what does it mean? Many years ago, I had an Old Testament professor who, very smart, very, very wise, knew, knew Hebrew very well, knew the ancient world, and, and, and as he was teaching, he took me from this text uh, into the Song of Solomon. And at the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, uh, verse 10 says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And he told me, that what God is saying here is that because of the fall, your desire will be for your husband. It means that she will desire romantic love with her husband, right? She's going to desire him. That's great. Um, and I listened to it and kind of scratched my head and I thought, is that really what that's talking about? Um, what, is that actually, what, what does that even mean if that's true? It sounded to, to me, it sounded like it raised more questions than it actually answered. But there is one other use of this word, and this is very important, because it actually appears in the next chapter, Genesis 4, verse 7, where God speaks to Cain about the sin crouching at his door. This is what God says of sin that is raging, a battle raging in Cain's heart. God says to Cain, its sins, its desire is for you but you must rule over it, right? Now, so it's important to recognize that was written by Moses himself in a way that intentionally pairs the words together to play off each other in a way that demonstrates meaning in comparison. It's similar to what God did in Genesis 1 and 2 when he made man in his image and in his likeness. And then later he uses the same phrase when he talks about Adam having a son in his own likeness and in his own image. It's different But there's a connection. 
and understanding how those words work together. The same thing is happening here. There's not, though, a direct correlation between sin and Eve, equating a woman to sin. But the reality is that sin in the world has turned everything upside down. And just as sin controlled Cain, think about how it controlled Cain. Sin led Cain to actually act against God's design for his own manhood. His calling to love, to believe God, to obey out of that faith, to protect those around him. Instead, what will sin do? Its desire for for Cain is to to do the opposite. It's to rebel against God and against God's word. And rather than protect, he will, do you know? He will kill. It's the upside down. It's the opposite. But we'll get to have that story another time. What's happening here then? Just as sin desired that, Sin wants to control you and me and to lead us to act contrary to God's design and calling. Eve was made to image God as a life-giving helper alongside of her husband, head of creation. We'll hear about Adam's headship next week and how that plays out and relates to the fall and to us Sin at work within Eve will actually work against that. It will create a desire in her to control, to act contrary to God's design. Her desire will be for her husband. It will be a desire to control him passionately. And that's the tie-in to Song of Solomon. That's the only tie-in that I see. Because it is a passionate control. Not positive. It's working against what God has designed. Instead of walking alongside of him as an ezer, she will want to lead or judge and act according to her own desires, just like at the fall. Often in Christianese, you'll hear language that kind of speaks this out when you, say, when you hear, yes, uh, he, he might be the head, but she is the neck that turns the head, Okay. Um, and we kind of laugh and go on because it's like, yeah, that's true. Um, right, but that's actually Genesis 3. Um, that's, that's not the way God has designed it. What about the man? Well, God says, as her desire will be for her husband, it will be the, the turning of God's design, in the same way he shall rule over you. And so there's a reality that will play out on the side of the man as well. Instead of imaging God as a nurturing, protecting, priest-like man, next to God's royal daughter, leading her, caring for her, protecting her, he will rule over her. And the ruling here is the same idea found in chapter 4, right? Cain must rule over or master his sin. And so here God is not exhorting man to rule woman. That's a very important note. He states it as a reality of what the fall has created, a reality of sin at work in the hearts of men and of women, a twisting of God's design. And as the head of creation, Adam was to lead his wife, to cultivate her, to protect her as a part of creation, just as he was called to in the garden. But sin at work in the heart of man, leads to self-ruling desires that will work against God's design. He will seek a hierarchical top in place of God instead of a loving head under God and alongside of his wife. Instead of the mystery of the intimacy of oneness, there will be a vine of two-ness. Because at creation, the two are made one, And through the fall, there's now a vine for who is going to lead in this relationship. A desire for control, a ruling over. A flesh that naturally opposes one another in God's design, in the roles of creation. And you don't have to travel the world very much to see this at work. It's all around, the way it plays out, sinfully, men dominating women. Women controlling men or trying 
cultural confusion all around us, both trying to get above the other, or the opposite, women who see themselves as less than, as doormats under, only to be used and ordered around, or men who treat women like children under their authority, and and churches who would actually teach that that's right and good. Or you see it in men who are completely passive, happy to let their wives lead, happy to be self-seeking, self-entertaining, or passive-aggressive, somehow happy to not lead but resenting her for leading and then lashing out. You find anger, blow-ups, rage where men know they're falling short but would rather blame or take it out on others, and on and on. Sadly, the reality of sin and the failure of men, and the abuses and hurts and neglect caused by men cry out in numberless atrocities, both to women and children. And I've walked in those fields, I've walked with those children, and I've seen those women. Men as hierarchical rulers or men who abdicate responsibility, both sides. And so the reality of sin in the world, the reality of sin in our hearts, cause us to naturally war against God's good design or to adopt worldly power structures or the opposite. Romans 1 goes even farther because Romans 1 is going to detail how exchanging the glory of God for images of creation or images of man, self-worship and self-exaltation, exalting ourselves above God, actually leading to a calling of the unnatural, what is natural. Men forsaking women, women forsaking men, marrying one another and calling it marriage. And that is not, that is not God's design. It is by nature following the opposer of God's design. The one who opposes God's design with enmity. He hates it. And he hates marriage. And he hates manhood. And he hates womanhood. But God is passionate for manhood, for your womanhood, for marriage, and for all that he has created. Why is there fighting and quarreling among you? James asks. Because your passions are at war within you. This is a reality for all of us. Sin puts up walls in our hearts between even image-bearing sons and daughters. Because it it doesn't just stay in marriage. Like This is a reality for marriage. But this plays out in relationships. We want to be right. We want to have our way. We want to control or we want to rule. You see that from the school bully to the authoritarian boss. Or we swing, letting others make decisions or do the hard things to, uh, my opinion doesn't matter. I have to have my way. You could play it out on and on as we walk through the conundrum of relationships. God put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. But in our sin, we put up walls of enmity between each other. And we could just stop right there and just hash those things out and think about those for our own hearts and our own lives. Where do we see this at work? But there is one more verse. Well, three more verses. Verses 17 to 19. Because here we're going to find God speaking to the man. Just as sin has turned God's design for marriage and really manhood and womanhood and relationships upside down, it's also turned God's design for Adam and mankind's relationship to creation upside down. Verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Amazingly, here God almost speaks to Adam in a parallel way with the serpent. And again, we see this this poetry, sort of this imagery, as we look at to the serpent, uh, 
back in verse 14, God says, because you have done this, here's the implication. And then to Adam, he said, because you have done this, here's the implication. And so you kind of get this, this parallel with, with the woman right in the middle where God just speaks directly to her um, of the implications of the fall on her. Um, so to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Okay, stop right there. Let me just state very clearly. God is not saying, don't listen to the voice of your wife. I just used a double negative. God is not saying, don't listen to the voice of your wife. And, and quote this text. You say, well, you know, Job didn't listen to the voice of his wife. That was a good thing. Right, that's a good thing. Because she was saying, curse God. Like, don't listen to that voice, right? But scripture is filled with the beauty of, of the opposite. For example, Nabal didn't listen to the voice of his wife, Abigail. That was bad. He missed out, right? Um, Proverbs 31, 26 says this uh, of the, the, the Proverbs 31 woman. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And over and over again, Proverbs speaks about not forsaking your mother's teaching. Father's instruction, mother's teaching. You see these, the beauty of these together. And, and that goes right into the gifts of God's spirit for his body and the gifts of wisdom or discernment that are poured out on male and female. And so God isn't saying, don't listen to the voice of your wife because she's more easily deceived. Um, that, I would actually say that that is typically and often not true. Hence the commands throughout the New Testament, don't be deceived, don't be taken captive, don't be self-deceived, right? You don't do it. Um, we find that over and over. So what is God saying? Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, the voice that actually was speaking contrary to my voice. Because you've listened to that voice and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Right? Here it is. Adam worshipped Eve above God. That's wrong. That's idolatrous. You don't, don't listen to the voice that opposes or works against God. Listen to the voice of wisdom. Listen to the voice that draws you to the heart of God. Listen to the voice that preaches the gospel to you. Listen to that voice. Heed that voice because that is God's gift to you. And so no husband should listen to a wife or anyone who's speaking contrary to what God has spoken. No wife should listen to a husband's voice who is speaking contrary to what God has spoken. And this is about the commandment. And so now we're going to see the impact of the fall felt towards creation. Because Adam wasn't just the head of his family and the head of his wife. He was also the head over creation. And that's why God says in verse 17, right, because of your sin, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And this is crucial, right? Because earlier God cursed the serpent. And here God curses the ground. Can you see that image parallel? Just like with husbands and wives, there is a reversal of God's design. In pain, you will eat of the ground. Work in the garden would have been pleasant. Now it will be painful. The thorns and the thistles that chapter 2 introduced to us, right? Before these things were, were in the world. Well, here they are. And this is what's going to come. That's what the ground will bring forth for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. It's going to be a hard labor. And so just as the fruitful and multiplying now of giving birth will be increased pain for Adam, uh, the, the bringing forth of sustenance and life from the ground will also be through hard pain. And in this, we see creation groaning under the pain of the curse. And then there's this poetic image in verse 19. Because it's by the sweat of your face that you shall eat bread. And then look at what he says. Till you return to the ground, 
For out of it, the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's like a little poem within a poem. And I like, I like poetry, and I love the, the complexity and the beauty of Scripture uh, as we come into it. Uh, it's like, till you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, because dust you are, and then to the dust you will return. You kind of piece it that way. Um, and there's a play on words in the Hebrew, and I think it's worth drawing out, because the dust of the ground in Hebrew is Adama. So you came from Adama, and Adam will become Adama again. And you get this to the dust, Adam to Adama. From the ground and to the ground, the living being now decaying back to the ground. And the reality is the impact of sin on creation goes farther than just this. Just like earlier with wombs or relationships, the reality of fallen creation now groaning, this turning upside down. We find the, the hurricanes and the floods and natural disasters and mosquitoes, they must be, they must be, I, I'm just kidding there, um, malaria, pests some way, though they all serve their purpose, I know. Um, but there's a reality that creation is suffering under. And really, this, this, this passage is foundational for all of the brokenness that we see in the world, right? It all comes back to here. You see brokenness? It's back to Genesis 3. Whether it's us to God, us to each other, or us to creation. But there is hope. And it doesn't end here because God so powerfully at the beginning talked about the offspring who will come, almost in a way that will make right what was made wrong at the fall. And that offspring has come. And the greatest reversal has come upon us because God is a God of great reversals. So I want to look at just four reversals that we see kind of flowing uh, from this text into the reality of the one who's come. And I'm going to kind of in a good reversal way, work it backwards. Okay. And, and so the, the first reversal is that Jesus took the curse of death so that the blessing of life might be given to those who are in Christ. Okay, uh, Jesus took the curse of death so that the blessing of life might be given back. Uh, Galatians 3.3 says this, or 3.13. says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took the curse of the law Ultimately, he took the curse of sin and the curse of death upon himself. He bore the wrath of God towards sin and sinners. And he turns then the curse into blessing. And that echoed blessing of chapter 2, that radiated blessing that he brings to the man and the woman, we hear it just resonate through those in Christ. Blessed, blessed are, are you in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me, and I want you to just hear how Paul takes this imagery and through the coming of the offspring reverses the curse of death. Peter, if this was a text for next week, I apologize. Use it again. Listen to verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a life-giving or a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And I won't comment on the passage other than to say simply, what a reversal. That the curse of sin and death into dust you will return. And now through the man of life who has come and born the true, the one who is the image of God and who took our sin and took our death, that even as we are destined back to the dust, the dust is raised and becomes what is beautiful, the seed in the ground, uh, perishable, coming out what is imperishable. The man of dust uh, really being replaced by the man who is the life-giving spirit. You see Jesus taking this and just turning it upside down. That's an awesome reversal. Second reversal is that creation, though thorns and thistles and though by the sweat of the brow and and now having to work hard for provision um, within this creation. Creation itself actually joins us in longing for new creation. And this is a beautiful, beautiful picture from Romans chapter 8. Verse 18 says this, that I consider that the sufferings of this present time, right, sufferings that exist because of the fall, because of the curse, um, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, the sufferings both of creation and of those who oppose God and his people. Verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, all right? It wasn't like, hey, pick me. Um, But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, that creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that this whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see how those tie together. And so there's this reversal now of creation joining us in the longing to be clothed fully in Christ, in His righteousness. Our God is a God of great reversals. Third reversal. Jesus took the full enmity between the serpent's offspring and the offspring of the woman. Now, think about it with me. As we watch this, this opposing, this enmity that's at work between these two lines that are going to come out. We're going to see it in Cain and Abel. We're going to see those who are, are of the evil one uh, violently opposing those who are of God, those who are of faith, and we'll see that as we walk through the story. All right, and we see that right into uh, Israel going into the land of, of Canaan, a, a type of new garden that's filled with enemies, and these enemies oppose God, and they oppose God's people, and we find that in that context, excuse me, God fighting for his people in zeal for God's name, in zeal for God's truth, and for his law to be lived out 
we find God fighting his enemies, cleansing the land, and his people fighting uh, in his name, trying to, wanting to make God's name great throughout the earth. And we see that kind of language even in the imprecatory Psalms. There's this longing for the enemies of God to be put down, right? And we see that language right into the New Testament as the disciples are like, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume these enemies, right, who are rejecting you and rejecting your message? Very Sodom-like picture, right? This, this is what we should do. I, I am so zealous for your name that I want you, will you smite the enemies? And we see Jesus in his wrath towards sinners is going to be poured out in a very different way because he's going to reverse what we have seen. Rather than calling down fire and judgment like the disciples wanted to, when Jesus was on the cross, the fullness of the enmity, the opposing of God, the greatest opposition, the Son of God, kill him, crucify him. And as Jesus is dying at the hands of his enemies who have, are killing him through the enmity of their own hearts, again, back to Genesis 3, Jesus could have called down fire. Jesus could have destroyed them. Jesus could have armed his disciples. Jesus could have done all of these things. What did he do? And I love it that Luke records it because it would be Luke. If you know his gospel and you know his heart and the way he presents Uh, Jesus and his words and his works. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They are acting naturally according to their Father. They don't even know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Instead of judgment, he asks for forgiveness. Even as he suffers at his hands, at their hands, Jesus shows the way that victory and his kingdom will go forth. How is that? Through a people who treasure Christ and who can suffer at the hands of enemies and proclaim in an otherworldly, crazy, inexplainable way, forgive, I forgive you. I forgive you who can love enemies and even lay down lives for enemies, imaging Christ, who is the image of God. The Apostle Paul was an enemy of God, right? He deserved death. He was killing Christians, those who are opposing um, God and his work. And even as Christians suffered and died at his hands, what did God do? He revealed himself to him. He, he, He brought him to his knees to confess Christ is Lord, and he changes Saul into Paul. God has mercy. God reveals himself, and Paul discovers grace. And you hear this language that Paul will use, because the victory in the kingdom go forward through the display of the great reversal. Did you hear that? It goes forward through the display of the great reversal, through a people who don't count their lives as dear to themselves. And that's what Paul said in Acts 20, 24. Or those who speak forgiveness, even when they're being killed, like Stephen in Acts 7. It's a consistent imaging of the one who came and gave his life. Jesus turns the curse upside down because he's the God of great reversals. And then do you know what he does? And this is awesome. At least I think it's awesome. Listen to the language of Ephesians 2. And I don't like jumping around passage to passage. I don't want us to get lost in the enormity of it. And yet, we can't escape it from the text to see how this plays out. Because Ephesians 2, listen to what Paul writes. And we're going to see this really leading into uh, the, the, the second part of this reversal. Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no 
hope without God in the world. Okay, so you were on the side of the serpent. You were hopeless. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Did you catch that? This is the only other use that I could find of the same word that translates enmity in Genesis 3. In Christ, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of enmity by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the enmity or the hostility, killing it. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who were near. And you just see this imagery because those who are of the serpent still oppose the people of God. But what do we do in the face of the enemies of God? We lay down our lives. We proclaim forgiveness where it seems impossible because he's killed the enmity. We love our enemies and we long to see them brought into the relationship with Christ and under the rule of Christ. Jesus has broken down the wall that divides and it's no longer ethnic. It's always been of faith. And we find that playing out right here through the gospel. He has reversed this by killing the hostility. We follow our Savior by pursuing his name to the ends of the earth, not counting our lives as dear to ourselves. Does that sound crazy? Because that's the implication of the gospel. And as the serpent's children oppose the gospel and God's children, something incredible happens because through love and through forgiveness, through Jesus put on display, it's through the martyr's blood that the seed of the church grows. We see that throughout history, and that is an incredible reversal, and that's the beauty of the cross. Last reversal, the fourth reversal. Jesus reconciles and restores our relationships with each other, and that's in that same passage. Listen to verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, right? The sin which brings division and death has been overcome, bringing peace and forgiveness and restored relationship to one another. And we won't go there. We've we've preached through this and taught through it. We see it reversed in Ephesians 5 where husbands are set free. They don't have to dominate. They don't have to rule. As heads of their wives, they sacrificially love again and nurture and protect. And they image the Savior Jesus, of whom we are all part of his bride. And wives are imaging, again, life-giving Ezra as they submit to their husbands. And as together, right here, they are displaying the beauty of Christ and his people for the world to see the healing of the brokenness of marriage, relationships restored, men working and keeping, and women life-giving, helping together in the kingdom. All of us imaging the truth of the gospel to one another because the only way it works is through this amazing word called grace. To know his grace and to live his grace in our relationships to one another. Father, as you have forgiven me, I forgive. Echoed, right? That's echoed throughout his followers. Father, I forgive them. It's displayed in his followers. Father, I lay down my life for you and for your people. We walk the hard path of sacrificial love. Even as we groan with creation 
for that day to come? Do you have hope for the reversal of whatever it is that you see sin corrupting and affecting in your life? I look at my own family and my relatives and extended relatives and there's times where I just go, there's no way this ugliness of sin and death, the brokenness goes so deep. And then God's like, Keith, would you just get out of yourself? Do you have the perspective? I am the God of great reversals. Just read through my story. Do you trust me and not yourself? Are you willing to sacrificially love? Are you willing to speak truth in love? Are you willing to show grace and kindness? Are you willing to walk your part in that story? Oh, Lord, I kind of don't want to. That's hard. But I want to. I want to trust you and your work in the lives of fill in the blank. What about the brokenness that I feel because of sin, other people's sin, or the reality of death in the world? There is hope that God takes the pain of grief and he reverses it for us and turns it into hope and joy and thanks. But it's his work of grace. But he does it because he's the God of great reversals. And he is the one that we gather together and worship and picture because it is through his death that we are united together in him. We're going to come to this table and when we come to table, I want us to have this image in mind, the reality of Christ reversing the fall, taking the curse of sin for us, bringing grace and forgiveness into our lives and then through us to each other and then through us out. All right, all of that pictured as we come. But before we do table today, we're gonna do a little different because the great beauty of the great reversal is that we get God. Did you hear that? We get God. God offers us himself. And in the midst of all that we find in this fallenness, we get God. And there is nothing greater. And so we want to just pause and just worship God who dwells with his people and then come and partake as we remember Christ together. Let's pray. Um, oh God, thank you that in the reality of the brokenness and the fallenness that we see around us, that, that Jesus, you make sense of the world, and it, it is right, and it's good, and that, that is our good. You are our good. May we see that and run after it. Lord, would you work in our hearts what needs to be worked? Would you bring repentance where it's needed, um, faith and hope? Lord, I pray that as we worship, um, that we would behold our great Savior, and as we come to table, that we would truly fellowship together with you and each other through your spirit for the glory of your name. Amen.